Welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dillon Thomas, and we are here today with the uh, amazing Margot Bloomstein, who is a, uh, a multi-hyphenate, so I don't want to try to guess all the things in the right priority. So Margot, I will let you kind of introduce like what you want to like put at the forefront here. Sure, sure. Multi-hyphenate, I like that. Um, <laughs> dog lover, liberal. <laughs> there we go. Um, I am... Uh, I've been a consultant working as a content strategist for about 20 years. Um, And over the past few years, I've kind of trained my focus within content strategy and then within broader user experience on, um, on topics around trust, how we get there through pacing and I don't want to say control of the user experience because that's a pipe dream, Um, but how we shape and, um, and inform the user experience, and then more and more about how we how we kind of inform and educate and meet our users where they are. And I think that's probably how I started backing then into how do we think about trust? How do we how do we influence it? How do we evolve it? Do we need it? Um, what should be our role in fostering it both within the experiences that we create and then um, more broadly within society as a whole, as it turns out, um, and this research has become increasingly relevant for better or worse, um, a society that is increasingly cynical, um, not trusting to the point that sometimes we, we kind of... Uh, make choices or choose not to take in information to our own detriment? And is there a role then for all of us that shape user experience then to contribute not just to better user experiences and um, better, better brand experiences for the organizations with which we work, but also to a better society as well. And that's where I've been focusing over the past few years um, working on a new book that'll be coming out in March. We have a release date Yay. now. Yay! Um, Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap. And um, and there I've had the opportunity to speak with, um, with creative leaders, CMOs, marketing directors, creative directors, designers, content strategists, social media folks in a broad variety of of organizations in the public and private sector um, to hear from them what works. And then out of that, to develop a new framework to say, we all wanna do something. Um, I think that uh, like everyone, I I vacillate between despair and hope, um, overwhelming distraction and focused purpose. And I think amid all of that, um, to kind of find our purpose right now um, is, is especially important, especially when so many of us are like, how am I still supposed to be focusing on client work? How am I still supposed to be focusing on copywriting or on wireframes when the world is literally and figuratively on fire? And I think that more than ever, now is when we have a purpose and a role in improving things. And, um, and that's what I had the opportunity to write about. That's that's a lot, um, and, and it's and it's and it's really <laughs> and dog exciting. Lover. Oh yeah, and dog lover. Let's not forget that. Um, I feel like we can tie that in somehow. But um, so let's talk about. Let's start to connect those dots between the trust aspect and the purpose aspect. So going back to trust, like how do brands build trust in a? I, I even and it's funny. As soon as I hear the word brand, I already start to get a little bit 
distrustful, right? <laughs> I'm already like, oh, a brand. Oh, they can't possibly have my best interest at heart. Hmm, right? So how does a brand uh, build trust, you know? Hmm. Well, and I think the fact that you're having that kind of knee-jerk reaction of like brands and ugh, if they get involved, is it going to be meaningful and authentic or just a very well-funded ad campaign that everybody can see through? Um, and I think that's exactly the right question to be asking. But then I think we also have to counter that with saying, well, why not brands? Why not corporations? If, if they're out there making money, if we're out there making money, isn't now exactly when we should be figuring out how to best give back, how to best strengthen the societies in which we work? Um, and I think to that and the real role and opportunity for corporations is to say, well, if we want to operate within society, within a capitalist society, um, how do we make that society better? And then what does it mean to be better? Is it wealthier? Is it to enable like the upper echelon of society to be wealthier, to buy our stuff? I'd say no. <laughs> I think to me, a better society is one where everyone is stronger, smarter, more able to get in some way the things that they need and then to also consider the things that they want, whether it's to acquire or to create or to shape and influence and contribute to. And I think that starts with organizations saying, we're not just here to sell stuff or if they're in the public sector to deliver stuff, mm -hmm. but also we're here to make sure that our audience is smarter about the things that they need, about meeting their own needs. So I think the opportunity for brands and for every kind of organization to, um, to establish trust is to say, first, how can we become trustworthy through acting with consistency over time and across our platforms? And I think that's something that folks in user experience, we know well. We know how to create consistency through things like editorial style guidelines very tactical things like that. But then beyond that, how do we not just create organizations that are trustworthy because they are consistent, so they have that kind of like internal consistency, but also how do we create organizations that are also more trusting themselves? And I think that's by also by creating smarter audiences, by figuring out, well, what is the right content, um, the right sort of self-help tools that my audience needs right now to be able to make good decisions and to feel more confident and smarter about the decisions they're making. So I think there's a, a confidence angle in there as well. And I think beyond talking in terms of consistent voice and the right volume of information, the other um, aspect of trust is vulnerability. And I think that's something where we can really dig in, not just on the personal side of things. I think Brene Brown, she does great work there, yeah. but on the corporate side too. Yeah. And that's something I definitely want to explore because I feel like there is a perception of corporations, of brands. Uh, you know, I've talked about this before, a very, uh, not to be too reductionist, but a, a hyper-masculine view of capitalist society <laughs> that's all about like, confidence in the sense of I am never wrong and we're strong and we're leaders and, you know, we, we conquer, we dominate. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and there's definitely it some all like too familiar right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's funny how, how familiar it sounds, but I, I agree. And Brene Brown's a perfect example. Like Brene Brown talks very much around the notion of vulnerability as a very, very powerful thing. Um, that I think, and I think that notion goes counter to how we traditionally think about big corporations. So can you talk a little more about what it means for a corporation or for a brand to be vulnerable or to represent vulnerability? Sure, sure. So when I started looking at corporate vulnerability, organizational vulnerability, I mean, it, it sounds like a weakness. Mm-hmm. And um, I needed to take a step back and think more in terms of, well, what are the opportunities in vulnerability? When we express personal opinions, when you share a personal anecdote as an individual, it's usually an opportunity to bring the person that, with whom you're speaking to bring them closer. Like maybe they physically lean in because your voice got a little quieter, or maybe they want to lean in because you're expressing emotion and they want to say, oh, me too. I've been there too. And it's when we start speaking in those personal pronouns and say, here's what I discovered. Here's what was important to me that there's usually a better opportunity for human connection. And I think on the corporate level, that makes so much sense too. And I don't just mean like in um, kind of like in inter-office communication and all, but it definitely plays out there. But when corporations are willing to say, here is who we are, and they're speaking in those personal pronouns, they're not hiding behind the corporate voice, but here's who we are. This is what we believe. Um, I think a perfect example of that is what we see with um, Penzi's, the, the spice company. Um, I don't know if anybody listening is a, is a big, avid home cook. I'll tell you, I am not. But I am a customer of Penzi's because when they started saying who they were and revealing more about themselves as an organization, I said, oh, they're in line with my values. I want to support that organization. I will buy spices as Christmas presents and hope that that's a cool thing for everybody that I know in my life that cooks. Um, Because once they started saying, this is who we are, it was an opportunity for me to say, me too. And I want to support an organization that aligns with my values. So just to unpack this, um, in uh, in 2016, um, after the last presidential election, Bill Penzi, the um, the owner of this spice company, the spice retailer, um, he took to Facebook and he said, I'm not cool with who just got elected. His values are not my values. And as the CEO of a spice company, you might be thinking right now, I got to stay in my lane. But guess what? Immigration, um, how we treat other people, how we establish and define families in this country, that is my lane because turns out spices are oftentimes sourced from war-torn areas. Um, So much of the cooking that we do in the United States is influenced by immigration because people come here with their recipes and then they become our recipes. When we say that cooking is love, I think that's one of the organization's taglines, it's because we bring people together around kitchen tables and dining room tables And we believe that if you don't have enough seats at the table, build a bigger table. This is our lane. And here's what we believe. And um, he wrote this long post on Facebook. And I think he might have included in there something like, you know, if you believe this too, right now we're running a promotion. It might have been on uh, Mexican vanilla. Um, He said, come into our store, buy a bottle of Mexican vanilla. Turned out they got a lot of bad press. A lot of companies, um, other companies responding and basically going like, 
ooh, we're going to back away from them. And a lot of newspapers also writing about it. Um, a lot of people saying, hmm, stay in your lane. But they also got a lot of positive response. Turns out much more positive response than negative. They saw their audience base grow tremendously. Um, they saw their sales skyrocket. And then every time they would post about things like that, every time they would respond to political issues and say, here's what's going on, but here's what we feel. Here's who we are. Every time they put a stake in the ground and were incredibly vulnerable, it allowed their audience to better understand who they were and say, me too. That's the company I'm going to support. And I think it's that level of vulnerability that as so many of us are more in our houses now and kind of outside of like the public space of going to the office and going on public transportation as much and all. Um, we're looking for more opportunities, I think, to connect with organizations and finding humanity wherever we can. And it can be a real opportunity then to say, this company, these are the humans and the human values that we comprise. And here's who we are. So you can figure out if we're right for you. Well, what's really, I mean, a lot of things are interesting about that, but what's really interesting about that, one of the things is um, what you said about your reaction to that, right? Which is say, I'm going to buy gifts. I'm not a home cook, but I'm going to buy gifts for people who I do know who are home cooks. And one of the challenges as a content strategist I always find when I'm consulting folks or teaching folks is to say, look, the best recommender you have, more effective than ads, more effective than content, is somebody's friend saying, oh, you're looking for luggage? here's a great luggage company, right? Um, but I've never been able to sort of consult and say, and here's how you get their best friends because their best friends' interests are completely foreign to you and may not align at all. But that idea of values, right? That's something that goes beyond like the narrow lane of interest of baby names or luggage or cooking or whatever it is. And that can then be something that literally in your case means that your friend is getting, you know, some gifts from this particular spice company because you align not with the spice, but with the values. Right, right. And I think it's an opportunity for people to say, me too, let me learn about it more. Um, and to kind of wear their values more kind of like on their sleeves, so to speak. And I think that that level of of vulnerability and sharing our values. It's a, it's a wonderful opportunity for connection. It's a wonderful opportunity for, for businesses to engage with that authenticity that they all seem to be seeking. We pay a lot of lip service to that, but I think that we forget how to operationalize it. And, um, and truly to be authentic means for better or worse to say, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. What do you think? And to go back to like your earlier point that um, I think previously within, within capitalism and all and, and within businesses over the past, I'd say probably like 100 years or so, there was always this idea that you don't want to reveal too much of who you are because you might alienate some people. Turns out you will alienate some people, but then you'll find deeper loyalty with the people that stay or the people that seek you out. And I think by putting out more hooks, more ways for, for people to seek you out, you develop stronger customer relationships that take many businesses from the point of being just kind of best price transactional experience to something where there is that, that sense of 
loyalty and that sense of, oh, I see myself as a Penzi's shopper. I know there are cheaper places to get vanilla. I've, I've learned this even without being much of a cook, but I want to invest my time and money there because, because of who they are, but more importantly, because of who I am. Mm. And I think that's um, that kind of interaction is an opportunity that that businesses can give their audiences. And we know at a very fundamental level, even without talking about values, that when organizations clarify who they are and who they're not, it allows them to establish a better relationship with their audiences. That's why when um, when brands that are all within the same industry are able to differentiate based on things like message architecture or their, their hierarchy of communication goals. That's why people are able to say, oh, you know, when I fly, if I fly again, it's with JetBlue or I'm a Southwest customer or I only ever fly Delta. It's because of not just where they have their frequent flyer miles, but also because of what they know from the experience with those brands and what they know and value about themselves. And I think having that that kind of visibility into an organization, into our understanding of the organization, as well as into ourselves, is really helpful. And then businesses that are able to, to go that route of sharing more about who they are, um, they're able to develop those deeper relationships. And I think that vulnerability, it isn't just about expressing your values, which I know for some organizations is too far out there, too daunting. I think that we can also establish that kind of rapport, even by doing things like like prototyping in public. Um, mm. When BuzzFeed launches new features and they say, here's what we're trying out, give us your, your opinions. That could be opening themselves up to feedback like, this looks horrible. I would never do that in a diagram. I can't read those labels. As well as feedback like, can you make those labels bigger because this is the kind of screen I was seeing it on and it didn't work for me. When they do that kind of um, that kind of design work of prototyping in public, when when TED has done that, when other news mm. organizations have done that, it creates a deeper experience with the audience. Um, we see perfect examples of that all the time on Kickstarter, when a startup or when an established company is going back to Kickstarter to say, "We're rolling out yet another camera bag. We're rolling out um, yet another great fidget device." give us your feedback, buy into this early. They're, they're literally saying, buy into it emotionally as well. Be a part of this ride with us so that when we launch the new feature, when we launch the new product, you're on board for it as well. Yeah, and it's, Kickstarter is interesting too, right? Because I feel like one of the things you're keying into is I think something we innately know about human relationships, right? Like it is impossible to make a connection with another human without some degree of risk right? Without some degree of vulnerability. If you're completely a facade, you'll never truly connect to another human being. So it makes sense when you scale that to the level of a brand, if they're never vulnerable, if they're never taking a risk, they're never really going to be able to connect with anybody. Um, what I think one of the things you said is really interesting to me, and I'm curious your, your thoughts on this, is the notion of operationalizing vulnerability, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I'm, I'm curious, like, have you seen that or do you have thoughts about what that looks like? Sure. Yeah. So when I say operationalizing vulnerability, I mean saying let's go beyond having it kind of as like part of the vision and part of like the marketing speak, but then saying 
all right, we've built castles in the air. That's where they should be. Now let's put foundations under them in Mm -hmm. the form of strategy and tactics, um, guidelines against which we can measure how well we're doing. Um, Are we writing in the first person? Okay, let's document how to be vulnerable. Mm. And it is things like writing in the first person when we're using imagery. Are we showing people in it or are we showing like their hands doing things? Are we showing people reacting? Can we see their faces? Um, Things like that, that take those principles and unpack them and say, here's how we're going to do it. Are all of our photo shoots perfectly polished or are we able to say, no, this thing, we're throwing it up on Instagram. Let's show the behind the scenes production process, whether it's of a new product or, or a new recipe or things that we're trying and then saying, this doesn't work. This is like the also ran stuff. I think that's a level of vulnerability that many organizations can adopt. What it takes, though, um, to use just like the example of, say, editorial style guidelines, let's say like in your organization, you say, yeah, I'm down with this idea of showing more about how the sausage is made. Might be that folks in the legal team are kind of scared about that. Like, are we going to show like products breaking that we choose then not to release? What if our competitors get wind of that? And I think that Within organizations, we can have those tough conversations to say, all right, if this is a principle that we espouse, if we we like this idea of vulnerability as a way to bring people closer to the brand um, and also educate and empower them with more knowledge, not just so that they know more about us, but also feel smarter themselves. If we're on board with that, let's figure out how we're going to do it in a way that is okay by our investors, is okay by our legal team. Let's document the parameters of that um, in our governance guidelines in things like editorial style guidelines so that we don't then have to go through a long process every time we wanna release new content to the blog or go through a really long review process every time we just wanna tweet out some images and show things in the moment. Instead, let's develop the parameters of what is acceptable so that we can get approval on those parameters and then operate within them, which, as it turns out, requires some trust as well. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that comes back to something, a theme I keep coming back to is like, what is your job? Right. Um, And I mean, we've talked about this a little bit already, like, you know, the job of that brand isn't simply to make stuff. It is to fit into a certain, you know, sector of society. And there's a certain responsibility there. And I feel like that definitely comes through when you're dealing with the legal department, because everything you're talking about, like, given the type of legal department you have could keep them up at night. And if the goal of the legal department is purely defined as make sure we don't get sued, well, then the best content strategy is to never publish anything, right? <laughs> so that, that, that legal team's job needs to be defined in a, a broader way that encompasses the mission somehow. I think, that, I think that's kind of like the way to make something like vulnerability actually tenable. The other, the other option, honestly, is also that one of the things I learned in the foundation world <laughs> is that there are two kinds of lawyers. There are lawyers who are there to keep you from getting into trouble, and there are lawyers who are there to get you out of trouble. (laughs) That's kind of the spectrum. (laughs) So that's kind of the other approach, I suppose, of like, okay, do what you're going to do, and just let me know if anything comes up. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's an element of that also in, like you said, you know, well, what's your job? My first thought is, first, do no harm. Yeah. And that doesn't mean do nothing. Um, 
which would mean then, well, don't ever publish anything because then we have to balance the risk and reward. Every time there is, as you said, the vulnerability, the, the risk in vulnerability, when you expose yourself, um, when you have that, when you kind of make that, that play towards someone and say, here's who I am, what do you think? There's so much inherent risk there, but that's exactly how on a personal level, we find our closest friends. We, we maybe find our spouses and our closest relationships. And I think for many people, you would never trade on that. You would never say, I wish I'd never risked anything. And I think on a corporate level, um, we can also look at that to say, well, what can we expose? What can we share? Um, where can we bring people close even if we don't expose everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been one of those inherent ideas in social media for a long time, that um, if you're putting a lot out there, it means there are some things that you are allowed to keep back, um, that, that hopefully society can respect that you keep back as well. And um, I think on a corporate level, having those conversations with the legal department they're tough. They require executive buy-in, executive leadership. And hopefully that's where your executive is saying, this is the new vision. We are embracing this idea of building trust because you know what, if we don't, we're not going to last. We're not going to survive this time. We're certainly not going to thrive in this time. So we need a new way to do things. And I believe that from kind of a corporate standpoint, maybe a capitalist standpoint, trust is the way forward. Mm. But more importantly, I think for our society, addressing trust is the way forward because consumers and citizens alike have become increasingly cynical. Uh, we see how sales cycles are slowed down, but more importantly, we also see how when governments publish information about whether it's about public health issues, and um, we certainly see that a lot now, or just things on like basic services, like where to get more information about voting, where to get more information about garbage pickup, where to get more information about filing for public benefits that you, you are due anyhow, people kind of raise an eyebrow to it. And they say, well, can I trust this? Or it's confusing. I don't know. That's how they're always trying to screw you. And, and people bring a lot of cynicism to things that could be serving them. Um, when I was writing the book, one of um, some of the research that I did was with gov.uk and speaking to the team there, um, as well as with a few branches there as well, and, um, and hearing more and more about how they went through a big process to create more trustworthy content online. At the time, I think they were framing it in um, creating more more credible, valuable, relevant content online because they had a problem where they had over 70,000 pages of content about government services. And it was spread between, um, or among, uh, I think it was nine different websites with a lot of information. Not all of it was consistent, shocking, I know. Um, and they saw the problem where when people needed information about like filing for certain benefits, they might poke around government websites and then inevitably go elsewhere to places like The Guardian and see what information they could get there. So it was, it was difficult to find information that, that really belonged to the public. Um, 
the the audience didn't have confidence in what they were reading. They were kind of stuck in this cycle of doubt, which we know from from issues in the public and private sector, that when you're caught in this cycle of doubt and feeling like you can't trust anything, you start to wonder if you can even trust your own perceptions. We, we call that gaslighting. That wasn't what they were out to do. So they took a step back of saying, well, how much information is enough to make people feel confident and smart? What is the right volume of information to offer so that people feel empowered? They went through a big content audit process to cut the content back from about 75,000 pages down to 3,000. They adopted a mindset that said, government should only publish content on the things on which only government can publish content. We don't need information about whether do you, should you be thinking about wearing a sweater in or a jumper in. Um, Previously, they had had that. We don't need information about beekeeping, but we do need information about what sort of tax you need to pay if you're importing bees into the country. So by having that, that very strict mindset, they were able to take steps that were very tactical to embrace this idea of becoming more credible. And I think it's that kind of work that that we can embrace, not just create more trustworthy systems and services and websites, but to help all of our audiences develop a greater sense of trust and confidence in themselves as well. And that's the part where I think then it radiates out into a stronger society. That's great. There's just one more point I want to hit. And I'm going to, we're actually getting some questions in the chat I want to hit up. Um, what you say about government is really interesting because if I think of a brand that has been tarnished and a brand that people do not trust, it is the U.S. government. And, and that's been going on since the 70s and has only really accelerated since then. And, and what, what's interesting to me about that is if we put this in the context of vulnerability, right? One of the few things, especially prior to say the 70s, that the U.S. government was known for is vulnerability, right? It was always rah-rah U.S., we know what we're doing, we have to instill confidence, we're going to war, right? We need people to have faith in the economy, right? Phrases like too big to fail, right? Every, everything is all about, it's gonna be okay, we're fine, nothing to see here, right? And as that you know, starts to fall apart and anyone with eyes can see, no, clearly you're lying, like, and yet, There hasn't been much, I won't say it's never happened, but there hasn't been as much of an attempt to have a vulnerable government. And like, I'm really so much so that I, it's it's difficult for me to even imagine, what does that even look like? What does a vulnerable government look like? New Zealand. Mm. Um, A lot of countries right now that have, it's going to say women as leaders, um, but uh, actually, there was just a comment in the in the chat from uh, Jess San mentioning Taiwan with uh, with more participatory civics. So let's unpack that idea, um, and I think we could go back even to like FDR and the fireside chats. Mm. I think when we talk about confidence and putting faith in in, in something bigger than yourself, whether that's a parent or a school if you're a kid, or a government if you're an adult. There's a necessary balance there, I think, between do you project something that is infallible and hope that you're never caught failing? Because if so, 
your audience completely loses trust in you? Or is it better instead to share your expertise and to have to stand in your expertise while at the same time sharing what you don't know and what you're going to figure out together. Because that's what I've seen coming out of like the government of New Zealand. That's what I've seen coming out in Taiwan. When, when governments are able to say, here's what we know, here's how we're continuing to invest in the work of, in the work of our researchers or in the work of our military, or in, um, in the work of the team that we've pulled together from the private sector to, to create something like um, the US Design Service and 18F. When they say, here's how we're making these investments because here's what we don't know, here's what we still need to figure out, here's where we're still going, there is a level of vulnerability in there. Um, I'd say that draws on really all three principles that all three parts of the framework that I'm advancing in trustworthy. When organizations can still speak in a consistent voice, it's good because it means that the people that are hearing them, maybe in that fireside chat, or maybe when they're tuning in to hear the latest from Dr. Fauci, they know what's coming. They know what to expect. They, they know when they should feel alarmed or when, um, when there's some suddenly like missing information in there that they've come to expect, like how they should feel about that, how they should react to it. So now when, when regional and municipal and statewide governments are releasing information about, um, about COVID-19 rates within their states, I think many of us that tune into that every day or every week have come to expect a certain level of information, a certain level of technical jargon that we know we can kind of get acclimated, to which we can get acclimated. Um, so when those organizations speak to us in a consistent way and share a level of detail that respects the audience, that audience then returns that respect because they know that, you know, my government isn't speaking down to me. They're not dumbing things down uh, because they're taking me along on this path, on this journey, because we're in this together. Um, they're not saying, don't worry, everything's gonna be fine, nothing to see here. We're going to cure this in two weeks or when the weather gets nice or when the weather gets cold or whatever the weather's going to do. The way organizations and the way governments establish trust is by being trustworthy through consistency and by trusting their audiences too by trusting their audiences to bring their own level of education or their own intellect to the table, their own interest to the table and say, okay, I'm ready to get smarter about this. Speak to me, meet me where I am, but then give me ways to unpack the technical jargon, define things for me in the moment. Um, and then continuing to communicate with vulnerability, because like I said before, vulnerability isn't weakness. Vulnerability is a strength that comes from confidence of saying, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, but here's our path to figure it out together. I think when we can all start hearing that more, not things are going to be fine, but rather we're going to get there. Here's how, here's what we still have to figure out, but we're going to do it together. That's the kind of stuff that imbues trust and respect 
and loyalty um, because it's a two-way street. And the, yeah. the side product of that is that it makes everybody smarter in going through that process together. Yeah, and I think that's like ideally like what democracy is supposed to be, right? There's this interdependence and vulnerability built into, hey, as a politician, my life is in your hands because you get to decide if I'm here or not. And as a populace, your life is in my hands because I'm making decisions that affect you. That's, it's, it is, you're right, it is, it is designed to be a two-way street. Um, Jess Sand, who, by the way, Jess also made a note about Taiwan. So everybody look up V Taiwan. It is one of the most amazing civic projects like I've ever seen. <laughs> I write about it in the book. It's, I wish more people were talking about this, but Jess has a question about like what happens if sort of bad actors start trying to use some of these techniques. Jess, I'll let you ask the question. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, we've sort of been operating from this premise of good faith, right? And some, a lot of the examples around of the companies that you've shared, for example, um, uh, it's V Taiwan, like Victor. <laughs> um, uh, some of the examples um, that you've shared have really been around um, companies that seem to sort of have some core ethics in place <laughs> from the get-go. Um, and I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the sort of danger of companies maybe that don't have that, ethical compass at their center, whose business models might be, for example, like anti-consumer, anti-labor, um, and what it looks like when folks like those employ these tactics and build, you know, they're building trusting relationships and, and might um, sort of be going through the motions uh, while actually kind of working more largely broadly to um, undermine the sort of principles at the heart of that. Yeah, I think that when, um, as you said, when organizations pay lip service to this or invest in the big ad campaign that says Black Lives Matter, and then you hear from everybody inside the company and outside the company of like, wait, what about the Black Lives on your payroll? Do they matter? Or the people that are no longer on your payroll and that you're not really doing a great job recruiting into your funnel? I think that I don't want to say like the market corrects itself, <laughs> but I do think that um, due in large part to, uh, as David was saying, around the impact of democracy, social media has democratized that type of communication where corporations no longer exclusively own their message. Maybe 50 years ago, a company could have gotten away with saying, this is who we are, when that wasn't who they were at all. But even then, we had journalists who would keep them in check and say, you said this, you said that you were all in on supporting families and all in this big family-run company, and yet we see you've also been doing this that's really dangerous for children or really dangerous for, for families. So we saw that kind of check and balance, but it was spread out over more time. I think now, even as much as we realize that in many societies, we have very short memories, at the same time, due in large part to social media, um, we also have much more targeted attention to be able to say, you say you're all in on supporting diversity and inclusion, and yet look at all these stories that are popping up from different people not going to the media, but sharing directly with their respective audiences, sharing on Reddit, sharing on Twitter and saying, this was my experience. Let's start extrapolating from my data point of one and see how it plays out. So I think that 
when organizations, when those bad actors, as you said, attempt to whitewash history, um, attempt to act without consistency, that's where we see the authenticity gap. And I think that that should be a warning to every organization that says, maybe these could be our values today. Um, that their audience, their employees, their former employees will hold them in check. And I think that's the real risk inherent in vulnerability. I don't think organizations should fear who they are if they've been doing a good job at improving who they are. I think they should fear exposing who they are if there are a lot of sordid things that they're trying to cover up. What do we do with companies like Airbnb, for example, then? So this is a company that I feel like does vulnerability really well. They do a lot of, you know, they're very open with their, um, in, like, internal design process. And, um, and they, do, they have a lot of sort of uh, socially, um, social uh, causes that they work with, you know. Um, and at the same time, they have completely fundamentally just... Uh, crushed local housing markets around the country. Yeah. Um, how do we reconcile that? And, and sort of what I'm wondering, like, you know, you talk about, um, I think that exchange of value and that audience relationship is really key, right? And, and like, how can we as both as consumers and as the employees working at these companies, like what, how can we engender that, I guess, um, or sort of hold them more accountable? I don't so, know if that's an easy answer. No, 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 <laughs> there no. is an answer, but. Hey, all of my answers have been super short today, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a really good question. And I feel like, I don't want to say, I hate saying the market corrects itself because that's, I have a lot of issues with that kind of thinking as well. But I feel like this is an area where when companies expose their values, as you say, they try to act with transparency, but some of the things that we've come to know about them that we can see walking around many neighborhoods in many cities, um, that isn't something that they're hiding because that is core to who they are. In succeeding at their business, maybe they're they're doing things that don't align with our values. And that's where I feel like their audience, by learning more about them, it's an opportunity for someone to say, now that I know this company, they don't align with my values. So I'm choosing to not do business with them. And I think that that applies to employees as well. Um, I think for for many people that listen to this podcast, and I think for many people that work in the user experience industry, um, we have the privilege of saying, I own my talent and I can take it elsewhere. That isn't true, I think, at many levels of our economy and in many industries. But I think that when you do know who your employer is and what they represent, you can choose where you want to invest your talent. And um, I think that as, as companies share more of who they are, um, those are, those are the kind of choices with which we're being confronted. Consumption, employment, um, I think those are, those are both areas where we're all becoming smarter for better or worse. And there is risk and reward on both sides of it. 
Um, I want to throw to Steph Belsky. He's got a really interesting question. Uh, Steph. Hey, Margo. Thank you so much for, for being here. And, and thank you, David. Um, so I guess, I guess something that I've sort of built a passion around is is similar to what to what you're talking about about you know fulfilling these values and brands becoming um, more successful when when consumers say yes that aligns with my values I want to purchase that product because that is who I am and I'll feel better about myself because they're stepping up and I want to support this company right. Great. But then you look at companies like Zoom that we're now relying on and you look at Amazon and I know Chris mentioned um, about gouging toilet paper prices and like, you know, there's nothing publicly that they've done. I mean, Zoom said, oh, we'll give you pro account for you know, for free until for like three months while we're all in this pandemic together. But what happens after that? And and what can they be doing in terms of their content to either align with a cause or, you know, do something to make us feel like, okay, we're using this product, not because we don't have a choice, but because there's a bigger purpose that we want to support. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that um, something that we haven't really discussed beyond just what organizations do in terms of their their messaging and how they speak to their audiences with what level of detail and how openly they speak, I think separate from that, and I think this is what you're getting at, um, is kind of what they, what are their actions beyond just what they're saying. And I think um, like looking long ter- long term at things like corporate social responsibility. Um, I think there's a there's an opportunity for organizations to be smarter about how they how they partner with different nonprofits as well as how they use their platform to elevate those other organizations. Um, I remember when when I first started working in this space um, almost 20 years ago I was working with Timberland and at the time um, they were starting to explore well what does it mean to be one of those brands that operates embracing this idea of um, of corporate social responsibility? And how do we choose the organizations where we feel like their missions align with ours and we want our profits to help underwrite their missions? Right. And they weren't, um, they didn't say a lot about that at the time in a very public way. We We supported some websites that did that. And I was a part of that, kind of developing that messaging and the story around it. Um, but I think that at the time, if I remember correctly, it was something like 30% of consumers described themselves, um, well, they fit into the category that was described as LOHAS consumers. And it was an acronym that stood for um, consumers that believed in this lifestyle of health and sustainability and that would choose to invest in organizations that also supported that lifestyle. And we've since kind of broadened that definition to talk more about how so many consumers vote with their dollars and um, choose to only support organizations that align with their values. And I think that there's an opportunity in there for corporations to say, us too we're going to support organizations that align with our values. And 
use our platforms to create more, more visibility for them, to underwrite their missions and what they're doing. Um, and I think there's a, it's a kind of a tough and, um, and graceful place to, to walk, to say, we don't want to just shout and crow from the rooftops, like, look at who we support, because that will undermine authenticity. And it may just right. come across as tacky. Um, but to also say, all right, I'm going to go out on a ledge here and maybe share that bit about my brand. And yeah, people might kind of raise an eyebrow to it. But yeah. to say, my platform is big enough, I want to use it to bring more visibility to these organizations and these right. causes as well. Right. And I think we can see that in a lot of consumer brands now. Um, ben and Jerry's, in oh. Penzi's, um, yeah. in yeah, and just yeah. so many that are saying the personal is political. We operate in a society that is shaped by politics. Yeah. So as an ethical part of that society, we're putting a stake in the ground too. Right, right. Thank you. Yeah, and it's it's true. Like, you know, you think of, um, I, I don't know, there's... It, it seems like there could be an opportunity for CSR and marketing to kind of come together a little bit more because these are two very siloed departments, right? Mm -hmm. And and there's like, oh, well, there's, of course, our CSR budget and there's our marketing budget. But it's like, no, actually, you could be optimizing that um, to, to be able to bring through a more authentic and trustworthy message, right? Like, I don't know, there, there are so many examples of, of companies that are just like, oh, well, we donated to this organization, but you know, we, we do that under the radar. We don't want it to be too public. And it's like, what a missed opportunity. Um, so yeah, I, and yeah, I see Steve mentioned the, the Ben and Jerry's New York Times Magazine. Oh, just so good. Right, right. Well, and like I said, I think that there is an opportunity for organizations to say, how do we walk that line between risk being tacky, risk turning off some of our audience and right. saying, no, we believe in this so much that we're contributing money to it. So we believe in it enough to talk about it as well. And I think that when they do that from a point of consistency and when they're not overwhelming their audience with it, but giving them more ways to participate as well. And then embracing the inherent risk and vulnerability of saying, this is who we are. Then they can reap the rewards of, of their audience and maybe a broader audience standing up to say, we are that too. Yep. Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's a really good way to think about towing that line. So my company, you know, in the wake of things started making, you know, certain donations and there was a discussion internally around how much do we talk about those donations? And is it to your point, I think it's a perfect word for it. Is it tacky, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> or self-congratulatory to talk about that stuff. And one of the like delineating things was, Hey, by talking about this thing we're donating to, are we giving people information about places they could be donating to? And so the whole post became around the context of, Hey, here are things you can do to help. By the way, these are ones we believe in enough to actually contribute to. Um, so I think we have time for one more question. And I missed one for earlier from Karen. So Karen, I want to give you a chance to ask your question. Yeah, and I think it works out that my question's at the end. 
Um, but coming from the UX background um, in enterprise software, there was a time early in my career where features were the def diff competitive differentiator, and then it became user experience. And I'm wondering now, particularly because there's so many back channels where we can see how companies operate internally as well as externally, if you see trust as being like the new competitive differentiator between companies. I'm hesitating be only because I feel like to say it's a competitive differentiator cheapens the work. But at the same time, I think that if organizations are not strategic about this, if they kind of dismiss this need within society and within their own audiences, I think then if we don't fix the problem around cynicism, if we don't invest in trust, all of our other efforts in marketing are a waste of money um, and a waste of effort. And I think that radiates then throughout the organization where employees fall away as well when they feel like they can no longer believe in the organization where they choose to invest their talent. And I think if companies want to keep attracting the best and brightest and maybe the most value-driven employees and the most loyal and enthusiastic and perhaps most value-driven customers and supporters in the, in the civic sphere, then this is where they need to invest. If we don't address the problems around cynicism, we don't improve our society. We don't improve our companies. We don't improve hiring for our companies. Um, we don't improve engagement with our audiences and we don't improve our world. And I think that is what we are here to do. I very much believe in the necessity of this work. I am, I believe fiercely in this book and I wanna get it into the hands of people that can run with it because I think this is the work that we need to continue to do. Um, this is why our work still matters now because, because our society matters and we're a part of it. Thank you so much. That's an uh, excellent note to end on. I wanna make sure people know how to get in touch with you or how to get the book. Um, how do people make sure they're on the list to, uh, to get this one yeah, comes out? Yeah, um, so, Go to appropriateinc.com um, slash trustworthy. And um, I'm going to be releasing a sneak peek of the cover there later this week to that list. So sign up for the newsletter there. That's where you'll get the cover and excerpts and all sorts of other goodies, as well as info about the pre-order, which will probably be starting in January-ish. Um, and then it drops in March. Awesome. Something to look forward to. It's so nice to have that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you so much, Margo. Thank you all for coming and asking such uh, intelligent questions. Um, it's been a great time. Um, next week, we are going to have um, Leica Carpenter, who is amazing, and you'll learn more about her then. The uh, link for that's going to go up uh, later today. Um, thank you all so much. And for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dolan-Thomas, and we will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you.